Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! They have declared a state of emergency because they want to shut the voice of the people. But the people will keep protesting. We will keep fighting until the end for all our fallen brothers. The politicians giving the orders are responsible for this. We are furious, outraged with everything that is happening. That is why we are here, asking for Congress to close down and for the current president, Dina Borote, to resign. She doesn't represent us. In Peru, at least 17 protesters, many of them teenagers, have been killed as demonstrations continue over last week's ouster and jailing of Peruvian President Pedro Castillo. We'll go to Lima for the latest. Then we look at President Biden's attempt to counter China and Russia's growing influence in Africa by inviting leaders from 49 nations to Washington. We plan to commit $55 billion in Africa. That number represents a comprehensive commitment from the United States to invest in Africa's people, Africa's infrastructure, Africa's agriculture, Africa's health system, Africa's security, and more. Then to Yemen. We'll look at why the White House pressured Senator Bernie Sanders to withdraw a resolution to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The House of Representatives has passed legislation that would allow Puerto Rico to hold its first-ever referendum to decide between statehood independence or independence with free association. The Puerto Rico Status Act was co-sponsored by Congress members Alexandria Casio-Cortez and Nidia Velasquez, two of the four current Puerto Rican members of the U.S. House, and was approved on a vote of 233 to 191. Sixteen Republicans joined Democrats in support of the bill. This is Congressmember Ocasio-Cortez speaking from the House floor Thursday. While Puerto Rico is not the United States' only colony, it is, the, it is its oldest. Today, for the first time in our nation's history, the United States will acknowledge its role as a colonizing force and Puerto Rico's status as an extended colony. The Puerto Rico Status Act begins a process for Boricuas to decide their own future. The legislation faces an uphill battle in the Senate, where it needs 60 votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. In China, public health officials warn COVID-19 cases are spreading rapidly and show no sign of slowing down after officials in Beijing abandoned their long-standing zero-COVID policy. Researchers estimate some 800 million people in China, or about one-tenth of humanity, could become infected by the coronavirus over the next 90 days. Several models predict more than a half million people could die. China's population remains especially vulnerable to a winter surge because few people have been exposed 
exposed to the coronavirus. They're also concerned about the effectiveness of China's domestically produced vaccines, which rely on inactivated forms of the virus. It's a technology that's proven to be less protective than the mRNA vaccines widely used elsewhere. The Biden administration's broadened its crackdown on China's semiconductor chip industry. On Thursday, the Commerce Department added YMTC and 21 other Chinese chipmakers to a trade list, blacklist. The White House has accused China of blurring the line between military and civilian use of advanced semiconductors that can be used to power hypersonic missiles and other weapons. China's ambassador to the World Trade Organization accused the U.S. of violating WTO rules, adding, quote, clearly the United States is a unilateral lateralist and bullying hegemonist. The White House has wrapped up a three-day summit that brought 49 African leaders to Washington, D.C. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit came as the Biden administration seeks to counter the growing influence of Russia and China in Africa. On Thursday, President Biden pledged $55 billion to Africa over the next three years and said he'd seek to expand Africa's role in international politics. The United States fully supports reforming the U.N. Security Council to include permanent representation for Africa. And today I'm also calling for the African Union to join the G20 as a permanent member of the G20. Biden also said he and Vice President Kamala Harris will be going to Africa next year. We'll have more on the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit later in the broadcast. The Senate passed the $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act Thursday in an 83 to 11 vote, sending it to Biden's desk for his signature. The measure provides $45 billion more for the military than requested in Biden's budget. It scraps the Pentagon's vaccine mandate in a major concession to Republicans. It also earmarks billions of dollars in military aid for Ukraine and Taiwan. One provision not included in the NDAA is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's permitting reform, which was shot down for the third time this year in a victory for climate activists and the planet. The amendment, which would help fast-track fossil fuel and mining projects, failed to garner the 60 votes needed, despite President Biden coming out in support of the measure. The Climate Action Group 350.org blasted Biden's backing of Manchin's dirty deal, writing, we need to phase out fossil fuel projects swiftly and completely. That's the only way to move forward a just transition to an equitable, renewable energy future, they said. In Turkey, thousands of people flooded the streets of Istanbul Thursday to protest the conviction of the city's elected mayor on what his supporters say are trumped-up charges. We came here today so we can continue to live in a country governed by the rule of law. We think the law has been violated. We came here to defend our rights and the votes of Istanbul residents. Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu was found guilty Wednesday of insulting public officials and sentenced to two years and seven months in prison. He remains free pending appeal. If his conviction is upheld, he'll be removed as mayor and barred from running in next year's elections, where he's seen as a challenger to Turkey's authoritarian president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. 
Spain's parliament has passed a landmark sexual and reproductive health law that guarantees people as young as 16 the right to voluntarily terminate a pregnancy in the nearest public hospital. The bill also guarantees access to sex education, free contraceptives, and menstrual hygiene products in high schools. It also provides paid medical leave for people suffering from painful menstrual cramps. Spain's equality minister, Irene Montero, championed the legislation. We are restoring the right of women between the ages of 16 and 18 to decide about their own bodies. And we also affirm that the state recognizes and respects the autonomy of women to decide, that we do not doubt their decisions. Here in the United States, three Senate Republicans last week blocked a bipartisan bill that sought to require basic workplace accommodations for pregnant people, including water bottles, a place to sit, or extra bathroom breaks. The bill passed with overwhelming support in the House. The Biden administration suing Arizona Republican Governor Doug Ducey over his state's illegal construction of a makeshift wall along the U.S.-Mexico border built with double-stacked shipping containers and razor wire. The complaint filed by the Justice Department demands Arizona halt construction and remove the barrier, which immigration and environmental advocates say is destroying precious biodiversity in the Sonoran Desert and putting the lives of asylum seekers at further risk as they attempt to cross the U.S. for refuge. Ducey has said his administration was trying to fill up the gaps in former President Trump's unfinished border wall. The lawsuit comes less than three weeks before Ducey leaves office January 2nd. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is calling on his state to investigate whether nonprofit humanitarian groups are helping asylum seekers cross into the U.S. In a letter to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, Abbott claims without any evidence that humanitarian groups, quote, may be engaged in unlawfully orchestrating border crossings. Abbott has intensified his anti-immigrant hate speech as the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy that's blocked over two million migrants from seeking asylum in the U.S. is set to end next week. Abbott has also described the growing number of asylum seekers arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border as an invasion. In Michigan, three men convicted of providing material support in the 2020 plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer were sentenced Thursday to prison terms ranging from 7 to 12 years. Prosecutors say Paul Bellar, Joseph Morrison and Pete Musico were part of the militia group Wolverine Watchmen, which planned to kill police and elected officials as well as kidnap the governor. The plot was hatched after then-President Trump urged supporters to, quote, liberate Michigan from coronavirus public health measures. Twitter suspended the accounts of over half a dozen journalists without warning after the social media site's new owner, billionaire Elon Musk, accused them of posting assassination coordinates for him and his family without providing any evidence. The reporters from CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Intercept and other outlets were suspended after Twitter changed its policy on, quote, sharing living location information. Many of the journalists had reported on the latest policy change and Musk's mounting crackdown on accounts he disagrees with. In a statement, CNN said, quote, Twitter's increasing instability and volatility should be of incredible concern for everyone who uses Twitter, CNN said. 
Texas lawmakers and grieving families of the victims of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde testified before the U.S. House Judiciary Committee Thursday, where they blasted Uvalde law enforcement over its botched response during the massacre and demanded federal gun reform. The hearing began with the sound of the gunfire that killed 19 students and their two teachers on May 24th. This is Faith Mata, whose 10-year-old sister, Tess, was killed that day. The days following the death of my sister, I took on the responsibilities and tasks that my parents could not bear to do. My parents should not have to plan their own child's funeral. So I felt the need to step in when they needed me the most. Our life has changed forever. It has darkened because our light has left. In Louisiana, five officers have been charged in the 2019 killing of Ronald Green, a black motorist who died after he was put in a chokehold, beaten and tased by Louisiana state police officers. The charges, which include one count of negligent homicide, come after years of organizing and protests. Authorities originally told Green's family he died due to injury stemming from a crash, but body camera footage shows officers assaulting Green, who tells them, I'm scared. A Texas jury has found white former Fort Worth police officer Aaron Dean guilty of manslaughter for the fatal 2019 shooting of Tatiana Jefferson. Jefferson, a 28-year-old black woman, was shot and killed by Dean, who is responding to a wellness check requested by her neighbor, who noticed the home's front door had been left open. Jefferson was babysitting her 8-year-old nephew at her mother's home at the time. The young boy, now 11, testified at the trial and was asked about the moments after his aunt was shot. He told the courtroom, quote, I was thinking, is it a dream? And Minnesota Congressmember Ilhan Omar is calling on President Joe Biden to commute the sentence of Daniel Hale, who's serving 45 months in a federal prison for leaking classified information about the U.S. drone and targeted assassination program. Hale pleaded guilty in March of 2021 to one count of violating the World War I-era Espionage Act. His lawyers say he sought to bring attention to, quote, immoral government conduct committed under the cloak of secrecy and contrary to public statements of then-President Obama regarding the alleged precision of the United States military drone program, unquote. On Thursday, Congressmember Ilhan Omar said Biden should pardon Daniel Hale and set him free. Daniel's case is exactly what the pardon power is for, where the letter of the law cannot capture the complex moral judgment that human beings make in extraordinary circumstances. I take the prohibition on revealing classified information extremely seriously. But what Daniel did was courageous. What Daniel did was patriotic. What he did was public service. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Peru, where mass protests are intensifying following the ouster and jailing of President Pedro Castillo. According to the news agency EFE, at least nine protesters were curled Thursday, bringing the death toll to at least 17 over the past week. Many of those dead are teenagers. 
police have attacked protesters with tear gas and live ammunition. On Thursday, a judicial panel ruled Castillo should remain locked up for 18 months of pretrial detention. The right-wing Peruvian Congress voted to remove Castillo on December 7th after he moved to temporarily dissolve the Peruvian Congress ahead of an impeachment vote. Castillo's vice president, Dina Boluarte, was quickly sworn in to replace him. On Wednesday, she announced a state of emergency across Peru. Protesters are demanding Castillo be returned to power. They have declared a state of emergency because they want to shut the voice of the people. But the people will keep protesting. We will keep fighting until the end for all our fallen brothers. The politicians giving the orders are responsible for this. We are furious, outraged with everything that is happening. That is why we are here, asking for Congress to close down and for the current president, Dina Borote, to resign. She doesn't represent us. Pedro Castillo is a left-leaning former teacher and union leader from rural Peru who was president for less than a year, a year and a half before his ouster. Last year, he defeated Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Peru's former dictator, Alberto Fujimori. Protesters accused the Peruvian Congress of unfairly targeting Castillo ever since he defeated Fujimori. It is totally unfair. I hope the Peruvian people will rise and defend the popular vote. We elected him. The Peruvian people elected him. The Congress did not let him work. All Peruvians are aware of this. The Congress of the Republic never allowed President Pedro Castillo to work. The leaders of Mexico, Colombia, Argentina and Bolivia have issued a joint statement to voice support for Castillo, calling him a victim of anti-democratic harassment. Meanwhile, the president-elect of Brazil, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, has taken a different stance, saying Castillo's removal from power was, quote, carried out within the constitutional framework. For more, we go to Lima, Peru, where we're joined by Eduardo González Cueva. He's a Peruvian sociologist and human rights expert. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you just explain what's happening right now and give us a description of the lead-up to why the president, Castillo, is now in jail, with thousands surrounding the jail. Good morning, Amy. Uh, thank you for having me. A massacre. What's going on is a massacre. This is what is happening right now in Peru. On the one side, you have a massacre caused by the indolence of social elites in this country who believe that the life of a campesino is worth less than any other. It's caused by the incompetence of our political class, and I include in that Pedro Castillo and his enablers, who were always incapable of finding political solutions to political problems. And it's caused by the despair of the people who see that this uh, constitutional order does not represent their interests or their voices. That is what is happening. Uh, what is happening is a coup within a coup. Uh, Castillo did not have the law in his hand when he tried to dissolve parliament. But it is important to remember that he did not try to dissolve parliament only. He also announced that he would rule by decree and that he would also intervene the judiciary power. So the idea was a coup not just against Congress, which is an institution that is widely repudiated in the country, but also against the judiciary, which was investigating uh, his entourage for accusations of corruption that seem to be quite serious at the moment. 
Um, so that was Castillo's attempt. Why did he do that? We will know at some point, because the reality is that apparently the opposition did not have the votes to actually impeach him that day. Um, but of course, that attempt of a coup, that tentative, was responded by a real coup. That is, Congress, with the law in its hand, actually proceeded to impeach Castillo immediately. It got the votes that it didn't have, because even people from uh, parliamentary groups that supported Castillo voted to impeach him, and then um, sworn in the vice president of Castillo's presidential formula, Dina Boluarte. And what has happened after that is that, of course, uh, we have had a situation in which the people reacted very quickly um, because of the agitation that obviously such a situation is going to cause. Castillo was not terribly popular. His uh, popularity, according to polls, was around 30 percent. Um, but Congress is even more unpopular. Congress approval, according to polls, is about 9 percent. So it was a fight between very illegitimate uh, political sectors. Now, what happened is that the repression with which the first protests um, is, is faced, uh, that is what causes an avalanche of protests. And the complete incapability of the regime led by Mrs. Boluarte to actually find forms of solution with what the people are asking. What the people are asking are several different things, sometimes even contradictory among themselves. Some are calling for Castillo to be restituted in power. That's true. Some others <clears throat> are calling for new elections. I think that is the majority position right now. New elections means that Castillo would not be in power, that there would be a process to find a different political leadership. Um, other people are asking for Boluarte to resign. The problem is that if Boluarte resigns, since there are no longer more vice presidents, the presidency would fall on the head of Congress, which is massively hegemonized by the right wing. The head of Congress right now is a military man, a former military man, who is accused of a number of atrocities during the armed conflict in Peru uh, 30 years ago. So the situation is quite complicated. I don't think that anyone knows exactly where things are going. Uh, my hope as a Peruvian citizen, more than just as an observer or a, or a social scientist, my hope is that, first of all, the massacre has to be stopped, that the state of emergency is lifted, that people are free to demonstrate, and that a process of dialogue starts so that we find what are the best routes ahead. But what is clear to me is that with the massacre that has been committed, the current government led by Mrs. Boluarte has lost all legitimacy. And I think also that the countries in our region, the governments in our region, should try to avoid um, fanning the flames. Honestly, the point right now is to ensure and invoke the authorities in this country to stop the repression and to let us Peruvians find the right way to actually solve the political crisis that started this repression. I want to turn to President Pedro Castillo speaking earlier this month before his impeachment. He accused lawmakers of trying to blow up democracy in Peru. Pretenden dinamitar la democracia. 
They intend to blow up democracy and disregard our people's right to choose, attacking the figure of the presidency of the republic in order to take advantage and seize the power that the people, tired of being left behind and seeing that a few people wanted to continue dividing up Peru, took from them at the polls. So that's the president who's currently jailed. Um, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of his history? Uh, go back to, I mean, this is the first political office he's held. Um, he is a teacher and a union leader. Tell us about his rise to power and why he speaks particularly to the marginalized in Peru. Castillo is the son of campesinos from the northern uh, region of Peru called Cajamarca. This is a region that was that has a very interesting and important story um, in our country. This is the region where the Spaniards first found, uh, first met the Incas. This is the region where the Spaniards started the massacres of the conquest, kill, uh, capturing the first uh, Inca that came in contact with them, Inca Atahualpa. And, uh, and, and so it's a, it's a region charged with meaning in Peru. This is also, also a region where the Shining Path was unable to enter because of the activity of basically community police, rondas campesinas. Castillo um, is um, very symbolic representative from this region because of his social extraction. Now, politically, he did come from um, uh, some sort of a wildcat union, a union of teachers that rose against the majority union in that sector. Um, he responded then to um, a very messy um, confrontation between leftist fractions trying to dominate the, uh, the union, the teachers' union. So, and, and he came to some kind of visibility because of a strike he led that was not just against the government, but against his own union. Um, so that visibility allowed him to be basically selected by a small um, left-wing political party to be the presidential candidate. They did not expect actually to win. The members of that party have been clear about the, the history of the elections, but they did. They did win, um, reflecting what was clearly the fury of the population about the, um, the situation in which we lived in. The fact that we were coming after two years of pandemics, uh, the fact that this was a country where um, per capita more people died in the pandemic than anywhere else in the world. And so he won. Uh, he entered into the uh, second round. We have a two round system here uh, because uh, the field was incredibly dispersed. He won the first round with only 16 percent of the vote. The second person in that election, Keiko Fujimori, uh, got second with 13 percent of the vote. So the two first presidential formulas got in total less than half of the vote. And with those credentials, they got into the second round. So it was a weak presidency, presidency to start with. Uh, it did not have a majority in Congress. It did have as a respectable uh, parliamentary group in terms of size. It controlled about one third of Congress. But the reality is that um, intestine disputes within his party between the different fractions of the left uh, led very soon to the dispersion of the bloc that protected and defended him. Um, 
And Castillo, during his tenure, did not demonstrate a lot of political reflects, uh, reflects either. He uh, named uh, ministers that had uh, serious questions around them, um, ministers and advisors who actually, after being accused of corruption, turned on him immediately. Uh, some of the impeachment attempts have emerged because people who were named by Castillo as secretaries or advisors or, or people in his entourage came to the prosecutors to accuse Castillo in order to clean themselves up. So Castillo never demonstrated uh, either uh, a lot of, of political leadership or capacity. The reality is that he was a bad president, simple as that. Of course, he never had a chance because the right wing and the press that the right wing completely dominates here um, um, took all the uh, possible accusations against him, even some that were incredibly frivolous. So we had a situation of an impasse that, that lasted what it has lasted. And um, at some point, there was going to be an attempt to break that impasse. It is unfortunate that Castillo started it. Um, that is that Castillo made the first move. If Congress had actually impeached him, I think that we, have, we would have seen this, but Castillo would have been in the right. And the problem is that uh, Castillo basically squandered the little legitimacy he had by trying to dissolve not just Congress, but as I have said, also the judiciary. So um, Castillo is a complicated character. Um, he is probably, um, there is a, a, a distance between what he is as a person and the symbol that he has become for many people. Um, the people of Peru does see in him a number of things that are important, significant, as a, a, a son of campesinos that gets to the first position in the country. But at the same time, he personally has demonstrated to be, regrettably, deeply flawed. Well, on Thursday, relatives of the ousted president uh, visited him in jail. He's in a jail in the foothills of the Andes. His niece, Vilma Castillo, said he's not doing well. His hands started shaking. His face was shaking, and we bought him pills. This is my family. This is my mother. This is my aunt. And over here is my other aunt. This is the family of President Castillo. We want the press to see our reality, how we live, where we live, the life we lead, so that they don't point the finger at us saying that we are the nephews, the corrupt nephews, the millionaire nephews. The niece of the jailed president, Pedro Castillo. Um, if you could talk about this scene in uh, at the base of the Andes of this jail with a thousand people camped outside, uh, Peruvians from all over Peru and outside flying in. So uh, there are a number of demonstrations. Some of them are happening in front of the uh, police station where Castillo is arrested, together with Alberto Fujimori, by the way. Um, now, I have the impression that these demonstrations are no longer about Castillo. And the demonstrations in front of this police station, of this police base, are not as significant as the demonstrations that we are seeing elsewhere in Lima. The demonstrations yesterday, which were called by the Union Federations, were quite large. And the reality is, as I said uh, before, that the protests and the uh, demands that the people are expressing 
are not necessarily now linked only to Castillo and his situation. People are already calling for new elections, anticipated elections, and also um, for a constitutional assembly or the way toward the constitutional assembly. What exactly would be the way towards that? That's, uh, that's another thing. But um, I think it's important, Amy, and at least this would be my uh, position, my uh, honest assessment of the situation, that this is no longer about Castillo personally, that this is about um, uh, the people of Peru who do not see themselves represented in this political system and are calling for a very radical change. Um, the leaders of Mexico, Colombia, Argentina and Bolivia have issued a joint statement to voice support for Castillo, calling him a victim of anti-democratic harassment. At a news conference Tuesday, the Mexican president, AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador, said Castillo should have never been removed from office. Let it be known, this is not interference that originates from above, from the so-called political elite, the economic interests and the media. They are the ones that cause this instability that harms Peruvian people. The recognition of Pedro Castillo as president of Peru has nothing to do with our foreign policy. What the agreement states is that the will of the people who elected him must be respected, recognize he won dramatically and cannot be removed. That was Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. Meanwhile, the president-elect of Brazil, Lula, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, has taken a different stance, saying Castillo's removal from power was, quote, carried out within the constitutional framework. And Chilean President Gabriel Boric has also recognized Peru's new president, uh, Dina Baluarte, the vice president under Castillo. Um, as we begin to wrap up, what this means for Latin America and this divided response, Eduardo? Well, first of all, I would like to say that Peru is quite different from other countries in Latin America. This is not Honduras, this is not Bolivia, this is not Colombia, this is not Chile, this is not Brazil. And I really, as a Peruvian, highly resent when the agency of Peruvians and the particularities of our country are reduced to a certain preset narrative. Be that the narrative that the right wing uses of a country supposedly in the hands of a rabid communist, or the narrative that behind everything there is some kind of uh, imperialist or right-wing complot against an immaculate uh, representative of the people. The reality is quite different and quite more complex than that. I hoped that the presidents of the countries in Latin America focus, first of all, in the human rights crisis, in the humanitarian crisis, which are not internal affairs. Talking about the fact that there are 17, 18, 20 people killed already, that is the point where they should be focusing on, rather than the recognition of who is the actual president or what was exactly the, uh, the events that led to this situation. Um, I do think that actually we should go reflectively beyond the immediate political reflex of looking at what was the presumable political tendency of the people who lost power or the people who has power right now. It should be, uh, the president should be looking at the situation in the terrain and the suffering of the Peruvian people and expresses solidarity, first of all, with the Peruvian people. Eduardo Gonzalez Cueva, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Peruvian sociologist, human rights expert.
speaking to us from Lima, Peru. Next up, we'll look at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit that brought together 49 African leaders in Washington, D.C. this week. Stay with us. Soy by Los Chapis. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's just wrapped up a three-day summit in Washington with leaders from 49 African nations. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit was held as the U.S. is trying to counter the growing influence of China and Russia in Africa. During the summit, President Biden pledged $55 billion to Africa over the next three years. We plan to commit $55 billion in Africa. That number represents a comprehensive commitment from the United States to invest in Africa's people, Africa's infrastructure, Africa's agriculture, Africa's health system, Africa's security, and more. President Biden also announced that he and Vice President Kamala Harris will visit sub-Saharan Africa next year for the first time as president and vice president. He expressed support for the African Union to join the G20 and for Africa to have permanent representation on the U.N. Security Council. Senegalese President Macky Sall, who is the current chair of the African Union, refused to rule out also working with Russia and China, but welcomed Biden's pledges. We share the same spirit. We want to advance our common agenda with you and take our partnership to the next level in an inclusive approach, bringing together governments, the private sector, civil society, and the African diaspora. To talk more about the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, we're joined by Amira Wood. She is executive director of the Green Leadership Trust, a network of black, brown and indigenous people on boards of environmental organizations and philanthropies. Amira Woods is also an ambassador for Africans rising for justice, peace and dignity, originally from Liberia. Amira, thanks so much for joining us again on Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of this three-day summit, what surprised you, what came out of this, uh, and the relationship between the United States and these African nations that were there and those that were not invited. Well, Amy, it's always a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for having space for this conversation. I would say, you know, the summit... It comes after four dismal years of the Trump administration where, where the former president was literally calling African countries, you know, derogatory terms, s countries, right? I mean, uh, the, 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 the just 
shocking um, abuse um, uh, that came out of that administration. So when you when you see a summit like this, yes, it's very much a photo op, right? But it's a photo op coming after this period when, quite frankly, it's it's being welcomed. I think we have to then look beyond the photo op to recognize that, you know, Africa is still very much, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican administration, it's still very much seen uh, in the lens of geopolitics, but also in the lens of, of, of this resource war, right? I think what we have, we have to pull back the lens. Historically, um, African resources have driven the global economy, whether it is the, um, you know, the, the, the cola that goes into Coca-Cola or, or, or the uranium that was from Democratic Republic of the Congo that was used for the uranium bomb dropped on Hiroshima. There is a long history of Africa's resources being used by the global economy, being used, quite frankly, to create the industrialization that we see in in Europe, in the U.S. It is the resources of Africa that drove that industrialization, yet, yet Africa did not benefit. And so what we see is that a global economy that is deeply unjust almost marginalizes, continues to marginalize uh, Africa and the African world and people of African descent all over the world. It is a deeply kind of racist, uh, capitalist extractive system that has, quite frankly, destroyed the planet, leading to climate change, global warming, disasters all over the planet. And what you see is that people on whose land those resources lie continue to be rendered invisible. So whether it is China or Russia or the United States, the story is the same. The extraction at the expense of communities, at the expense particularly of, of, uh, of women, children, and people who are desperately seeking a healthy, brighter future. Let's turn to U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking to the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. Regarding Russia and China, you know, the PRC, we're witnessing the PRC expand its footprint uh, in the, on, on the continent uh, on a daily basis, and as they do that, they're also expanding their economic influence. A troubling piece there is that they're not always transparent in, in terms of what they're doing, and, uh, and that creates uh, problems that will be eventually uh, destabilizing if they're not already. Um, in turning to Russia, uh, we see Russia continuing to peddle uh, cheap weapons. Uh, some of that was mentioned uh, before by one of our, our senior leaders here. Uh, and also, um, we see Russia employing mercenaries across the continent, and, and that is destabilizing as well. So if you, Mira Woods, can respond to this, I mean, China's Belt and Road Initiative, the difference between how China and Russia deal with Africa, and, I mean, the number of just U.S. military bases in Africa alone, and how uh, Biden is trying to deal with uh, countering Chinese-Russian influence. 
So let's remember, Amy, that 90% of U.S. trade with Africa is in oil, gas, and mining. It's in the extractive resources. And it is in those areas where the resources lie that there has always been military interest. And this is from colonial days to the neocolonial days. And regardless of the country, U.S., China, Russia, the military follows the, uh, the, 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 the companies, right, the multinational corporations that are interested in extracting those resources. Resources. So what you have had is an African continent where it is almost, uh, you know, this geopolitical nightmare. They pick one country, Somalia, let's say, right? Somalia throughout the Cold War went from the USSR to the U.S. almost trading, um, uh, you know, trading their, their, their uh, opportunities to dump weapons, particularly into Somalia, making Somalia incredibly ungovernable. We have to recognize that it is the interest in, in resources, whether it's the uranium in, in, in the northern parts of, of Somalia or the strategic positioning of Somalia in, in, in an area where the straits, where, where the global trade flows. It is the centrality of these countries that makes um, the global political battles um, more intense. So what you have had um, is the U.S. for the last 10 years expanding, actually, its military might in Africa, expanding the use of drones in places uh, like Somalia, um, where you have seen uh, untold deaths of, of civilians with the increased use of these drones. But essentially, it's, it's the U.S. picking and choosing where to send uh, and build military machineries that are then unleashed against the people. So in the case of Somalia, it was the U.S. drones, but the U.S. also um, funneling weapons to Ethiopia for a ground war in, in Somalia, and again, militarizing a region that um, is, is already—what you see, the U.S. expanding its, um, its efforts to add to the conflict, to add to the chaos in an interest to, to, to be able to, to have access and controlling those resources. And you have a similar situation with increasing military expansion from China, increasing military expansion from Russia. And in each of those cases, it is both the uniformed officers as well as the, the mercenaries, right? It is the U.S. military contractors, the, the, the increasing U.S. Um, security and civilians, whether it's the Sahel, um, or, or the Horn, or throughout the continent, these relationships are being deepened. And so, so what you have is a, a real, a continued push um, by mostly fossil fuel-driven industries interested in extraction. You have militaries then supporting those very narrowly defined, quote-unquote, national interests. Um, and, and you have a continuation of, of relationships um, that are propping up those who are are seeking to 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 open up channels for the resources to flow. I want to so, go to President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chisiketi, who addressed the issue of climate change at the summit. Since we are gathered here to speak about fighting against climate change, if you will allow me, I would like to first speak with regret to let you know about the crisis that my country, that my country has lived through the first few hours through the floods and the delusion rains because of the climate crisis that has caused hundreds of deaths, as well as enormous material damages that could have been avoided if the commitments of the polluting countries would have been held, would have been kept for the past few years. So it is imperious, it is necessary. 
So that's DRC President Shisekedi. Um, Amira, like Democracy Now!, you were in Sharm el-Sheikh at the U.N. Climate Summit in Egypt. Um, if you can talk about the issue of that was the subject of the summit, loss and damage, the U.S. pushing hard against it, don't want the liability, even though it's historically the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world, um, but what it means for Africa— Clearly, Amy, what we see around the world, but particularly in Africa, is that those who do not, did not contribute to the climate crisis are paying the heaviest cost. So it is black, brown, indigenous people around the world that are bearing the cost, right? So remember, when we talk about Africa, the resources were extracted to industrialize the, the European continent, to industrialize the U.S. And those resources were extracted at the expense of communities where those resources lie. And so what you have seen is incredible climate change, global warming, the repercussions, the impacts on those communities, on their health, on their opportunity to, to live healthy lives is disastrous. So we have seen increases in, in floods, increases in heat waves and throughout the world. And it is these deeply racist, structural, um, global economic decisions that are creating an unjust trading system, creating still the, the, the expansion in in fossil fuels, oil, gas, and mining, destroying communities. In the case of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's the best example. There are, in the, the rainforest of the DRC, um, peatlands that are actually opportunities for nature-based solutions to the climate crisis. These were solutions that indigenous people, community-based um, um, people who know the land have been putting forward. So I think we've got to recognize when we talk about climate change, those who have paid the heaviest price are also those who have solutions and must be in the decision making. And we saw in Shamal Sheikh, it was the fossil fuel lobbyists that outnumbered almost all delegations there in Egypt. And I think we've got to begin to, to recognize that we will continue to have a path of destruction of the planet planet unless we, we we change these structural systems that oppress communities. So the solutions are there. When it comes to loss and damage, the solution has been really clear. There must be reparations, right? Justice, centering justice in our global economy, understanding that those who have paid the heaviest price have also borne the cost. And there should be opportunities where, where there is investment in a just transition for the future in renewable energy that is community-based, in opportunities to actually bring forward innovative financing, right? So there's a lot of discussion of, of um, special drawing rights from the World Bank and the IMF to innovative, um, to find solutions that would actually move resources towards the just transition, towards a, a, a global Green New Deal, not only for Africa, but for the world. Amira, and I we, think only we, have, we only have a minute, and I wanted to quickly ask you, uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, their trip to sub-Saharan Africa will be the first uh, since President Obama. I was wondering if in a minute you could reflect on Obama's legacy in Africa, but particularly look at the 2011 attack on Libya and the effect that had on the continent. 
Once again, we've got to look at the issues of fossil fuel industries and militarism. That was the case in Libya, whether it's for the Obama administration or now for the Biden administration and future administrations. It is getting rid of the power of the fossil fuel industry that will put us on a path that not only protects the planet, but protects communities. So when we look at the Obama administration, we have to think about the expansion of, of AFRICOM, the U.S.-Africa Command, which was established, quite frankly, you know, um, and, and its first act was in Libya. And I think we've got to recognize that um, with the expansion of militaries, there will be continuous both political and economic chaos. We have seen the implications of the, of the crisis in Libya, the ouster of, of Gaddafi under the Obama administration has led to disastrous results, not only for Libya, um, but for, um, for the entire region, particularly the neighboring countries and, and even countries as, as uh, uh, far off as, as Mali, where coups were being um, organized by those who carried guns supplied by the U.S. and Libya across borders into other states. So we've got to stop the flow of militarism. We've got to understand the links of militarism to the fossil fuel crisis, to the climate crisis. We've got to begin to, to create other opportunities where um, fossil fuel companies are taxed, and we look at opportunities to, to actually cap um, the flow of these harmful um, uh, fossil fuels into our global economy. We've got to look at all of these opportunities to change global governance so that those particularly black, brown, and indigenous people have the opportunity for what you said at the beginning of this show in Puerto Rico, self-determination. This is the cry across the planet, self-determination of people. Amira Woods, I want to thank you so much for being with us, executive director of the Green Leadership Trust, also ambassador for Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity, originally from Liberia. Coming up, we look at why the White House pressured Senator Sanders to withdraw resolution to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Stay with us. Cabral by Senegal's orchestra Baobab in honor of the Pan-Africanist revolutionary Amilcar Cabral. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to the crisis in Yemen, a new UNICEF report finds over 11,000 children have been killed or injured in the U.S.-backed Saudi-led war in Yemen since 2015. A six-month ceasefire between warring parties expired in October. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders withdrew an expected vote on his Yemen War Powers Resolution Tuesday night after coming under pressure from the White House. He said he'd bring the resolution back if they could not reach an agreement on ending U.S. support for the war. We go now to Shireen Al-Adimi, a Yemeni-American assistant professor at Michigan State University, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. It's great to have you with us. Can you respond to what took place this week, what you think needs to happen in Yemen right now? 
Thanks so much for having me, Amy. Um, so really, this is a combination of years of trying to work with the administration to end their war in Yemen, support for the war in Yemen. Um, as you recall, President Biden was uh, very adamant about ending U.S. involvement when he took office, uh, except that he didn't really you know, fulfill this promise and his obligation to end the war. Um, since the Biden administration took office, they've been kind of um, operating under the assumption that whatever support they're providing the Saudis is is defensive and not offensive, but they never really clarified to Congress what this means. And so we've been trying to work to try to push another war powers resolution, which, as you recall, um, did pass when this war was seen as Trump's war in 2019. It passed Congress in a bipartisan uh, way, and it was vetoed by Trump. And so the idea here was that to say to the Biden administration that if you're serious about ending this war, end it. If not, here's this bill that would reassert Congress's authority to declare war, which they haven't, and to end all forms of U.S. support, which currently include, you know, logistics and intelligence and spare parts and maintenance. So it's changed since 2019, but they still continue to provide the Saudi-led coalition with various forms of military support, including also training of pilots and soldiers and whatnot. Um, so, you know, it's essential. And although there's, um, you know, things have changed in this past year with a truce that lasted for a few months and then ended, and there hasn't been any Saudi-led airstrikes since April, the situation on the ground is so volatile that this war powers resolution was absolutely essential to make sure that if there was a resumption of airstrikes, then the U.S. would not continue to support the Saudi-led coalition in whatever way they needed, just as they had been doing over the last almost eight years. We spoke to Ryan Grimm, the Intercepts D.C. Uh, correspondent, and um, it was right before Senator Sanders withdrew his resolution. And he said Sanders never expected it to pass, but if, like, 40 Democratic senators supported it, it would be a sign to MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, that he'd be in trouble if he broke the ceasefire, even if it has expired. So what does it mean that it's been withdrawn? So I'm not quite sure if he would have had the votes or not. Um, I mean, it's it's really surprising because, um, like I said, many of the people in Biden's administration, people like Samantha Power and Jake Sullivan back in 2019, were saying that we really, we really should end this war and we really should try to pass this w, uh, WPR, even though they supported the war efforts during the Obama administration. But they're silent now, and we have Democrats who have uh, essentially taken on the same position. Uh, but we still had a, an opportunity to, to pass this. And I understand that Senator Sanders started to to get pressure from the White House, who threatened to veto the bill. So President Biden essentially was threatening to veto the bill, even though he's been saying for the last couple of years that he wants to end U.S. involvement in the war. So the fact that he withdrew it, I think, is, um, you know, it's I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed by this outcome. Uh, I think the effort effort put forth by you know, anti-war coalition over the last couple of years has been um, definitely the right strategy to try to push for this WPR. The WPR is one of many legal strategies. War powers resolution. Yes, the war powers resolution. It's one of many legal strategies to try to end U.S. involvement in the war. Um, but, you know, here we are now in, in December and, uh, you know, we're going to have a Republican-controlled House next year, and I'm not quite sure how we are going to try to pass this again, but it would have certainly centered Yemen again into the conversation, which has been put on the back burner since essentially the war in Ukraine. You know, it's easy to blame another entity for their attack on a sovereign country like Ukraine, and yet in the case of Yemen, it's really the opposite. You know, Saudi Arabia attacked 
uh, Yemen a sovereign country and the entire world went to support them and continue to support them um, despite the unequal balance of power, this asymmetrical warfare and the immense casualties on humanitarian, on Yemeni lives over the last several years. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are starving to death, who have starved to death already or have been killed by the violence, millions of people who still rely on aid. The blockade is still in effect, although uh, parts of it has been partially lifted. You know, Yemenis still continue to suffer despite the ceasefire um, because, you know, bombs weren't killing most people. The blockade has been killing most people and continues to kill most people in Yemen. Saudi Arabia has not suffered the consequences of this war. They've been engaging in this war in Yemen. Uh, Them and the UAE have been occupying parts of Yemen and using its resources. And yet here in the U.S., um, we're not able to, you know, face our own complicity after all of these years. We're not able to say, well, we really should not be engaging in these war crimes. You know, Senator Murphy and Senator Sanders spoke on the floor and they talked about any form of U.S. support is not acceptable. Any any form, whether it's intelligence sharing or logistics training or, you know, uh, weapon deals, none of this should be happening. And yet here we are all of these years later, unable to come to the conclusion that we really should be ending U.S. complicity. Um, you know, this is the bare minimum that we can do. And we're not there yet. Shireen Aladimi, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Yemeni-American assistant professor at Michigan State University, non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Renee Feltz. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresena, Shireen Nadura, Sam Alkoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.